Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins platform. I'd like to uh, apologize to my um, listeners. Uh, we've had some technical difficulties uh, trying to get uh, back on the system. We're waiting on uh, our uh, guest, uh, Dr. Orfield, to reconnect. Um, we are just going to ask you to pause and uh, be patient with us for a moment while we work this out. Uh, we appreciate your your patience and understanding um, as we as we work through this. So uh, we're just going to uh, hold just for a moment while we we get this sorted out. Uh, again, thanks uh, for your patience. Again, my apologies for um, this uh, technical problem. Uh, we're going to leave you with some music uh, while we try to sort this out.
Technology is sometimes unpredictable. Uh, and thank you uh, very much for your patience, uh, Dr. Orfield. Uh, and so to the listeners who are still with us, um, just like to introduce uh, the first half of today's show um, is dedicated to um, Dr. Gary Orfield and the work that he's doing and has been doing for many years at the Civil Rights Project, uh, once housed at Harvard University, now uh, resides at uh, University of California, Los Angeles. So uh, welcome, Dr. Orfield. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And so to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being a part of our family. We have over 5,000 listeners every month, and to our new listeners, uh, we're glad that you've joined us. And today uh, we're going to open up the um, the, the telephone lines um, very quickly today because uh, we're, we're on a tight schedule and try to get things in, but I'm going to um, open up the telephone lines as we talk um, for you to call in at 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. But I wanted to start our conversation having um, Dr. Orfield tell us a little bit first about the work that they're doing at the Civil Rights Project and um, uh, some of the uh, the, the groundbreaking uh, reports that are are out now, uh, most recently on the status of uh, uh, desegregation and integration in American schools. So, if you would uh, just give us just a brief overview of what you do at uh, the Civil Rights Project. Um, the Civil Rights Project was founded 19 years ago at Harvard with uh, Christopher Edley as the co-founder, uh, who later became Dean of Law at Berkeley. Um, we moved it to UCLA um, in 2007. Our idea and our mission has been to commission, develop, and, and circulate new information that's relevant to civil rights in our era. And we've commissioned over 500 studies. We've we've published about 20 books. We've been engaged in many civil rights issues all over the country, including the case that was argued today before the United States Supreme Court on affirmative action. We've always looked at Brown versus Board of Education school desegregation as a central um, issue in in civil rights, and we've monitored with regular reports what's happening across the country. 
which showed basically that desegregation increased substantially from the time of the civil rights revolution in the 60s to the late 1980s. But after the Supreme Court changed the rules in 1991 and began a series of decisions that dismantled desegregation plans across the country, segregation has been increasing year by year in every part of the country for both African-American and Latino students. It's segregation, almost always double segregation by both race and ethnicity and poverty, and often uh, for Latinos, triple segregation by race, poverty, and by language. Um, It's very systematically related to unequal educational opportunities and unequal outcomes in many crucial things like graduating from high school, going to college, finishing college, um, and being ready and prepared to live and work in a multiracial society for all students. Um, So we've considered this to be a central part of our mission and have been engaged in it consistently and have another couple of reports that will be coming out soon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say desegregation, 2015. Why are you still talking about desegregation? What, what's your response to that? Well, the Supreme Court said in the Brown decision, segregated schools are inherently unequal. And 50 years of research shows that they were actually right. They are inherently unequal, not because there's anything wrong with black or Latino students or their families, but because they they are related to systematically unequal opportunities in a society where whites and increasingly Asians control the best opportunities. We find here in California, for example, that um, black students and Latino students have only about a tenth the likelihood of being in one of the strong high schools that actually prepares you for the University of California as whites or Asian students have. That that means that you just can't have a fair chance, um, and it's related to segregation because in those schools of racial and, and poverty segregation, there are less experienced teachers, teachers and administrators leave more quickly, the schools are much more likely to be focused on you know drill and kill in, in terms of test-oriented evaluations. Um, The students are more mobile. They change schools more often, often because of housing problems. They are less healthy because of unequal health care. There's many, many dimensions of inequality that are embedded in segregation as it operates now. People don't like to think about it because um, thinking about it seriously and realizing how profoundly unequal it is might require them to do something uncomfortable. So we found, for example, that New York State is the most segregated state in the country for for black students. Um, that's a tragedy. In a half century after the civil rights era, New York State never did anything much about it. And, um, you know, people are kind of blithely assuming that they know some way how, how to make this work. But it doesn't work. It is inherently unequal because of all the things that are related to race in our society. Sure. And so when you when you mention opportunities, what do you mean explicitly about opportunities? Well, if you think about schools, uh, schools are students and teachers working together with the curriculum. And basically, the teachers are less prepared and experienced. The curriculum is more narrow because the student, most students aren't ready for an advanced curriculum. Uh, and the 
the peer group, which is very important for student learning, is much less prepared. So the classes operate at a less competitive level. There's less college-oriented teaching. There's much less AP opportunity in segregated schools. Um, and there are many fewer teachers, particularly in science and math, that are really qualified to teach who, who choose to work in those schools and stay there. So that produces a systematically unequal opportunity. Another dimension of it is basically what we call networking. Um, colleges and powerful schools are linked closely. And there's lots of information and connections in a really effective school that lead you on the path to college and help connect you with college. It doesn't exist in most of the high-poverty segregated schools that we have in the country. For sure. Um, and, and so... Are you saying that as you look, I know you mentioned New York State, but what about across the country? I, I read uh, on one of your uh, reports in the website, you said that the state of Connecticut, um, I guess, had made some great strides. Um, are you saying that in a lot of places that there's still um, not adequate uh, integration of schools across the country? What, what's the national trend? How is that... Where is that going now? The national trend is going towards segregation, and it has been ever since the Supreme Court changed the rules in, in the early 1990s. Uh, it's been a steady progression backwards, um, and it's because we're not really doing anything about it. We don't have desegregation plans. The only federal money we had to work on race relations uh, and it was a voluntary program, was abolished in the first budget of Ronald Reagan. We don't, don't have resources dedicated to this, even though our schools are about half non-white and multiracial. There's lots of racial problems in the schools that need to be worked on. Um, we're not trying. Um, and we've created all these new charter schools that in in Manhattan, for example, well over 90% of them are what we call intensely segregated. A number of them are what we call apartheid schools, where there's one from zero to one percent white students. Um, you know, we are doing things that are making this worse. Sure, sure. And so that's that's pretty intense and serious to call it apartheid schools, and and in this, you know, we're approaching 2016, and. Uh, and, and, and so it sounds like I mean, you said definitively that we're going in the direction of uh, of, of more segregation and not in other. You, you, you said we're not doing um, anything or enough about it. Um, well, most states are doing nothing about it, and they're actually implementing charter schools with no civil rights regulations. Um, Connecticut's an interesting case because the state Supreme Court in Connecticut found that segregation um, violated the Connecticut Constitution and found that the problem, main problem was the lines between the school districts. And the result is that the state legislature was forced to, to fund regional magnet schools in, in uh, Metropolitan, Hartford, and Bridgeport, and New Haven. And it turns out those regional magnet schools are very popular with not only with students of color, but also with white students. Um, and there are a big waiting lists to get into them. But very few states are trying to do anything that's creative. There's a small bit of money that was set aside in New York to encourage um, social class integration, which is a modest but worthwhile step. 
Most most places in the conservative era of the 1980s and 90s basically stopped trying to do anything and just assumed that they had some way to make it work. And they, the evidence is overpowering now that they didn't, that nobody knows how to make segregated schools equal on a large scale, although there are an occasional um, elementary school particularly that does well on certain tests. But you really can't learn how to live and work effectively in a multiracial society, growing up in a segregated neighborhood and going to a segregated school. You just don't get the skills that are very important in those can, in, the, in our future. We're all going to be part of different minorities. And so, but, you know, back to, you know, the whole issue, because, you know, we're thinking about what, what education leaders can do. We have a number of people who listen uh, to the show that are uh, school board members or it's not education researchers, but policymakers, uh, both, you know, superintendents. Um, what, so are you suggesting that this needs to be new federal legislation? I know um, that a lot of states have turned to charter schools, and in a lot of places charter schools are doing amazing things, but you say there's no civil rights um oversight, if you will, in those, um, but um, wh- where, where, do we, where do we need to focus our attention on the leadership? Everyone could do. Um, nobody probably has it in their power to solve it by themselves or their, any one institution, but for example, we can stop building subsidized housing in places with totally segregated apartheid schools. That's what we're still doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that means we spend a lot of money because new subsidized housing is very expensive and involves multiple subsidies. If you if you build it in a place where a kid goes to a dropout factory, completely segregated school, you're guaranteeing poverty that will be intergenerational. Why don't we just build it someplace where there's a decent school, where people can break this cycle? Um we can create voluntary inter-district magnets like Connecticut. It's a popular thing. Nobody's forced to go to them. People want to go to them because they offer distinctive programs. And people, basically Americans like diversity when it's handled well. We can think about taking advantage of gentrification to create integrated schools where there haven't been any for many years. Washington, D.C., for example, has been becoming whiter now for 35 years, but the schools remain almost totally segregated because there are no real efforts to reach out. We can take charter schools and other schools of choice and apply the lessons of the civil rights era. That They will not be fair unless there's recruitment of parents from all backgrounds, including immigrant students, non-English-speaking students. There's free transportation. There's good parent information. There's a plan for diversity in the school. It offers a distinctive program that makes it worth choosing. There's a, there's a number of things we learned in the time we were running really good magnet schools that we then forgot but we learned how to use choice constructively and we're now doing it in a destructive way except for a few people who are trying to do it better there's many many things that could be done uh, and each level of educational leadership could do something a group of civil rights organizations appealed consistently to the Obama administration to put this in as a priority in awarding federal funds, um, and they refused. Uh, it was very disappointing, even though there are some very good civil rights enforcement people in 
different places in the administration. And and so I know we are uh, coming to the close of this segment, but I want, you know, most of what you and I have talked about has been about kind of on the policy side and regulations. And and as you mentioned, everybody can do something about it. Uh, One of the the next segment is is we're going to be talking to um, a teacher and writer who has been experiencing um, uh, some very interesting dynamics in uh, a southern city uh, where there are there's fairly segregated schools and 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 so the the question I have for you though is that aside from the policy component uh, are you are you hearing and seeing that um, some of this is attitudinal um, and that there are some things that that and I'd, I'd just like to say a few words about that. What, 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 what is it about the attitudes that you're seeing? Well, you know, Martin Luther King was very sensitive to this. He said, you know, segregation creates false consciousness, false consciousness of superiority on the parts of the people who have the, are on the, uh, on the best side of the color line where they have the privileges. They think that they're because they're more talented and false consciousness of inferiority of the people who are segregated um, this is, this becomes very deep and people become very defensive and try to protect their privileges and they don't realize that they're really preventing their own children from being prepared for the society that's coming along and that diversity enriches everybody's experience that's what almost all of our colleges realize we need to realize that in our public schools um, you, you know, we need to be conscious of working on race relations and giving teachers and administrators tools to make things work out better. And it's not just between whites and African Americans or Latinos, but, you know, many of our schools have a lot of Latinos and a lot of African Americans and immigrants. And that doesn't work out automatically unless you think about it and have positive policies to be inclusive and to bring kids together and help them understand each other help them solve their problems in better ways. Thank you you so much. I'm going to have to leave you now, but I really appreciate the chance to talk to educators about these issues. Yes, thank you so much. And again, uh, uh, to the audience, this is uh, Dr. Uh, Gary Orfield at the uh, Civil Rights Project at UCLA. Thank you, Dr. Orfield. And um, uh, we know you're a very busy person and uh, just like to encourage you to keep up the good work and I uh, will be reading more about the the, the work that you're doing um, there at the Civil Rights Project. Thanks again. Our website at civilrightsproject.ucla.edu has many good studies that would be helpful to people who are interested in learning more about this. Absolutely, and as well as a uh, link to your Brown Lecture for AERA. Um, so we encourage our um, audience to, to take a look at that. Uh, thanks for calling in. Thank you very much. Good luck. Take care. And so we have um, also, as we move to our next segment, I'd like to welcome um, our our next guest um, is uh, Abby Norman. Uh, Abby, are you there? I am there. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, We just had a wonderful discussion with Dr. Orfield, um, who you may know is a, a legend in his own right. Um, has been uh, the director of the Civil Rights Project when it was at Harvard, uh, now at UCLA for uh, about eight years or so. Um, And I just want to um, 
give uh, to our listeners. Uh, you've reached uh, the Perkins Platform, um, a solutions-oriented uh, radio show uh, that is uh, on education and education leadership issues. And so if uh, we encourage any of you that are out there want to call in and um, talk to our guests um, at 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. And so we have with us, and so delighted to be able to have uh, teacher and writer, Abby Norman, who has taken time out of her day to be with us. Um, Abby, we're we're delighted. We have over 5,000 listeners every single month, and um, we're we are happy to have you share with us. Um, we have uh, posted links uh, to our website uh, to two exceptionally written uh, pieces that Abby had in the Huffington Post. Um, one is uh, what I learned teaching black students, and the other is why uh, white parents won't choose black schools. And I'd like to start um, uh, as a focus with the first article that, or I should say the second one that I mentioned, but um, about why white parents won't choose black schools. And and Abby, that was my, I saw this article in the Huffington Post first, and which made me do a little research on you and see if I could find you. It's like, we got to get her on the show. And I thought, uh, because we already had planned a show with um, Dr. Orfield, and I thought this would be a, an, an amazing segment to follow up from kind of the real effects of segregated schools. And as you heard at the end, I asked Dr. Orfield there, um, what, what uh, if any of this was attitudinal? And he said it was, in fact, and, and you heard what he said there. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'd like you to share for those of, who did not read the article about why white parents won't choose black schools, I'd like you to tell the story about that because it really, resonated with me about countless conversations that I've been at, at, you know, sometimes cocktail parties, sometimes receptions about um, these these misconceptions that people have about what's going on in urban schools, but just public schools in general. So if you could tell us a little bit about um, not only the one about the, the carpool line, but the conversations <laughs> had and and some of the ones that you've been a part of uh, experiencing uh, these misconceptions yes my um my daughter is the only child in or the only kindergartner in her school who is white everyone else is um, Latino or black and the vast majority of the school is black um, we live in a neighborhood that's twenty five to thirty five percent white and yet only about three kids in the whole school are white. And so um, we have faced some really interesting things. Um, I I did begin my article with just this funny little story of I went to pick up my daughter, and normally it's my husband who does, and the only other white mom at the school is the mom who picks up the daughter. And so um, they tried to put the other kid in my car. And I just was like, oh, I can totally see how they're just identifying me as the white mom when they're looking for the white dad to put my daughter in the car. Um, And that just speaks to how few white people there really are involved in the school um, in any way and and any white parents that might be involved in the school. And so that has has led to um, 
you know, at the playground or, or in, you know, maybe at the Y at the yoga class or or at the pool, we I have these conversations where I tell um you know, a parent, we're just chatting, oh, where do you live? Oh, where do you go to school? And I tell them the name of the school that my daughter goes to and they look at me and 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 they say, Oh, you you don't want to do that. You don't want to go to that school. Um which which I find very frustrating because I've actually already made the choice. And I actually do want to go to the school and I do want my kids to go there. And um, I've been discouraged by people who literally couldn't even tell you where the school is. They have Mm. just heard from other parents through the grapevine, you know, at the church nursery, in the yoga class, at the grocery line, wherever they meet people, they've just heard from other parents that, you know, my the school that we're choosing isn't a good one. But they don't actually have any information about that school. They just know what they've heard. Mm-hmm. And and so um, and so they they are discouraging you based on what they've heard. And so what it, what how have they responded to uh, what you have to add? And, and I noticed in the um, article you you you've, you've shared with them. Yeah, I generally say. I just try to remain really positive, and I say, um, oh, well, we're really happy with it. My daughter is thriving there. We love the principal. Sometimes um, if I feel like they're maybe a little more open to it, I'll say, I would really encourage you to go take a visit because it's really an incredible school, which is what we did. Um, We took a visit. We tried it out. We talked to the principal. We saw what was happening in the classrooms. Um, We were really impressed. And so – I think that when people talk about schools, at least um, in Atlanta where I am, they don't, they talk around the issue of race. So they call it um, test scores. They say, you know, I'm worried about poverty. I'm not sure about um, safety, which doesn't make any sense to me because when you're talking about a kindergarten class, like, are you afraid of the other five-year-olds? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But they talk around it. But all of those things are linked to race. And I do very much feel like, especially white parents, um, you know, as a white person in America, I could, if I wanted to, function in a world where I was never the only white person in the room. Mm-hmm. I could do that. It's not It's not hard for me to do that. Um, and I have instead chosen to not do that. And I think that people are are very uncomfortable with, um, at least white people are very uncomfortable with being the vast minority. They're okay with it being totally mixed, but they want there to be enough other white people that they feel comfortable. Sure, sure. And I, one of the things that struck me was uh, what you said in the article, and I'll read that, it's a gift for my kids to learn in an environment where their experiences are not the experiences of the majority of kids in the room. Amidst the discomfort, the worrying about what to tell my kid when she asks complicated questions about race, um, it's 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 a tough it's it's tough um, on both sides of this in terms of being um, the in a in a, a, a environment where. There's a majority one race either way, um, and and I, I think it's interesting that when you when as you've described this is that it's it's not just 
it's not okay for anyone to be uncomfortable. Um, that, but that we we need to do something to make sure that schools are places where uh, children have the same opportunities and that they they do have diverse experiences without the fear of of one one group uh, not being good enough for another. And that's what this turns out to be. So we know that resources are generally fewer. Uh, we know from the statistics that, um, that have been reported about behavioral issues, uh, about suspensions and retentions and expulsions. Um, how do you overcome that, though, in your explanations to uh, the parents about uh, why you still choose these schools? Well, everything I've read says that because um, they always want to talk about test scores. That's what they want to talk about. They want to talk about test scores. My children are are being raised by a man with a Ph.D. and a woman who has a, um, is working towards her master's in education and who has been a teacher for nine years. My kids are going to be fine on the test. My kids' test scores are much more about what is happening at home than they are about what is happening at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just that's just a reality that nobody wants to talk about, especially people who are very interested in um, rating schools based on test scores. Um, mm-hmm. And and there they so so I there's no everything that I've read, everything that I've seen says that my child actually isn't getting you know, an educational deficit in any way. Um, I want to go back to something you said, which is nobody should feel uncomfortable. And and I want to challenge that a little bit because I do feel uncomfortable sometimes. It is uncomfortable. Comes home with the, okay, we have to talk about Martin Luther King. And it occurs to me that she's the only one in the room who looks like the oppressor. Mm-hmm. That's uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. really tricky to explain that to a five-year-old. It is sure. it is uncomfortable for me when I go to the Christmas pageant and I do not pick up on the cultural cues because they are black American cultural cues that I don't know. That's mm-hmm. uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. But the great thing is that I'm by going to this school, I'm not passing that discomfort onto my child. Mm-hmm. She's fine. It's me. I'm the one who's uncomfortable. And I just need to be the adult, and I need to get over it. But it's it's really, it's tricky. It's always going to be tricky. And I think as as someone who was raised in white America, I didn't learn to talk about race. I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't learn how to do that until I moved to Atlanta, and then I began teaching at a primarily African-American school while my husband began teaching at Morehouse College, and we had to learn, and quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And, and that, was, that was a deficit that I had that I'm hoping that my girls won't have. Because just like your um, guest who said before, who came before me said, the, the reality of it is that my kids are going to be raised in a world when they become adults where they're going to need the language to talk about race where they're, they very well may be the only white person in the room in their career. And so I actually think that I'm doing them um, 
I'm giving them an advantage that very few kids in America have. Mm-hmm. Which is white children have. And and your point is an ex- excellent segue to the next thing I wanted to talk about. Um, and let me just pause for a moment uh, again to the listeners. Uh, feel free to call in if you wish at 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. Um, that your, your other article that you wrote about what you learned teaching black students, that's an excellent segue um, about you know, being able to have these conversations. Um, tell us a little bit, uh, uh, for those who didn't read, about uh, the story about you and the lesson you were um, yeah. you were you were teaching um, and and what you learned from that. Yeah, so it was it was my my first time teaching out of the textbook, and I was going to read the short story. And my other colleagues who are black um, were like, "Oh, teach the story. The kids love it. They totally understand it." They didn't worry about. Um, it didn't occur to them that I wouldn't understand it. The conflict in the story has to do with a um, adult child coming back to his mother and confronting his mother about the favoritism that she he felt that she had. And he felt that the reason he was discriminated against in his own family was because of the color of his skin. So I'm – this story is so embarrassing because I was just so ignorant. I was 22. This is my first mm-hmm. year teaching. I had – Gotten my teaching degree in um, in in Indiana at a very white college. Had very little um, uh, education about, I mean, multicultural education at all. And I, um, I the kids. So I asked the kids what the conflict was, and they told me. They told me he feels he's discriminated against because he is darker than his brother. And I was like, oh yeah, but that's not real. I mean, come on, guys. That's not real. And they just, I mean, they their jaws dropped. They were just horrified, you know, that I would say that. And they had to explain to me, they had to convince me that that, that is actually a problem in the African-American culture. Mm-hmm. And um, so as we, and, and that was just really the first major blunder that I had, is you teach American literature especially, but, um, you run into race and power. You just do. It's in the books because it is a go. Um, just over and over again, the kids had to teach me the the racial pieces that I was missing in the mm-hmm. books because I was only reading it from a white lens. And that when they showed them to me were very obviously there. And when sure. I tell these stories, people are like, I don't know, they want to turn it into some kind of like Hallmark moment where I had this awakening, and isn't that beautiful, and wasn't it great that I learned from my students? And I, I guess that's true, but I just think no wonder the kids had trouble learning from me that year because mm-hmm. I didn't understand where they were coming from. And how are they going to take me seriously about anything when I didn't even know these basic things about their culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Um... It's really interesting that um, uh, what, just hearing you say that, what do you think the answer is that would be for your, you know, 
your background and your training. So you say you went to a school where you didn't take a course in multicultural education, as an example. Um, I did. I did take a course in multicultural education. It was not. It it was not good enough. And I even took um, a. I took an extra class in multicultural, in cross-cultural communication, just because ah. I thought it might be helpful. And that was the most helpful, but these are just things that are scratching the surface, you know? I yeah. I went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. It's one of the best teacher education programs in the country. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was going to move to Atlanta and that I was going to teach in their city. And nobody, you know, there was no, like, hey, you need to do some extra reading on this. Now, I should have figured that out. Um, but it's it's just so, you know, I was just blinded by my whiteness, you know. Mm-hmm. Why would I need to learn anything about a different culture? Everyone can just come in and it's, you know, going to be kumbaya. And, and a lot of those false narratives that are taught um, through movies and books about teachers I had really swallowed a lot of those. And so I thought that if I just came in and cared enough, then that was really all my students needed. But what my students needed was somebody who was well-equipped to teach them specifically, and I was not. Mm -hmm. No, no, I understand, and that's why I was asking um, what, what do you think the answer is? Is it, so obviously it's not just, taking courses with these titles there there's a lot more development that that needs to be um placed in these courses that is currently not there uh even in the best situations and and um i just got an email from one of our listeners uh that said that asked the question um has she ever taught at white schools and is the teaching methodology different uh from teaching black students that is a really – I currently am teaching at what what most would consider a white school um, uh, through a series of just the way that my um, district does um, where, where you're placed, you know. I've never asked to be moved from a school, but I, I have been moved a couple of times. And I currently teach at, at what a lot of people would consider a white school. And I – um, and it's it's funny or interesting because I'm white, but I really had to re-teach myself how to teach the white kids. And it is a little different. It's not mm-hmm. a lot different, um, but it but it is a little different. And it's so, just a matter of um, one of the things that I struggle with now, even still, is that when I was working at um, a black school, the kids wanted to just have the conversations about race. Once I got over myself and my uncomfortableness in doing that, I I just did it. Well, then I got really used to talking about race just pretty frankly. And so then I go to this white school and I start saying these things, you know, just like basic, what I would now consider sort of um, race in America 101. And my students were like, you can't say that, that's racist. And I was like pointing out race is not racist. Mm-hmm. That's a reality that sure. we're living with. And we're just going to talk about it, you know? And they were like, no, talking about race at all, that's racist. Oh, wow. And, and, and I've heard that, and it's been uh, a common uh, misperception among 
students, but also a lot of adults uh, feel the same way that if you if you talk about it, um, that it is in some way implicitly uh, racist. Um, you know, I, I want to explore a little bit. You, you you mentioned you said that there's some things different. Um, what what would you say is your your the experience? Were, were there any surprises to you about what was different? What you expected when you went into schools that were majority? Um, uh, and in, I guess in in your case in Atlanta, um, African American schools, um, or were there uh, was there something that surprised you once you uh, started teaching in the white schools? Um, and it, it it seems so uh, unfortunate. Um, also, that I have to say that in 2016, that we are practically in. Uh, that we're talking about the white schools, the black schools still in 2016. Um, as you probably heard from Dr. Orfield, that the schools are not moving towards seg towards desegregation. He said they're moving back towards more entrenched segregation, uh, which is very disturbing. But um, I want to know from a practical point of view, what do you what what surprised you when you were uh, going to these these uh, less than diverse communities to teach? Um, just the disparity between the two. So I've only ever taught in the same district. Mm -hmm. So you would think that they would really, you know, the schools would be roughly the same because they're in the same district. They're, you know, supposedly have the same funding. But um, the just the difference in, like, how much classroom supplies I had to buy for myself or um, what what my, um, for me, um, it was not uncommon when I was teaching at the black schools to have, to have books that I'm teaching out of that were books that the, um, the whiter schools in the same district had, it had the white school's name on it. So it was like those white schools had decided that these books were not, like, nice enough for them, so they shipped them to the black school. Wow. That's... I mean, are you know, oh, okay. And it, it, it was really disheartening to me how much the kids knew, you know, how much the kids, how just, how, um, how much they just internalized that. I, I coached for a very short time. I coached as a debate team um, at the black school, and I I took the kids to, you know, a debate tournament at this nice school. And um, and it was a white school, and, and the kids, I'll never forget, I walked in, and this kid looked around, and his eyes got so big, he just looked at me and he said, wow, Miss Norman, somebody must really care about these white kids. Wow. Wow. And, and so they, they I, really. Mm. I was just broken. It was like they know, you know, they, they know that they are not being invested in at the level of other kids are being invested in. They know that it is clear to them. Sure. And so what do you think the impact that's having? Uh, do you do you have to spend time 
talking to them about their inherent value? Do you think it impacts their self-esteem, their motivation to learn? What In what real ways does that manifest itself in a classroom? Yeah, I think the motivation is, is definitely um, there. And just the reality of, like, what do they know, you know? What do they know? We're talking about kids who had never um, taken – the the two dollar and fifty cent ride to the city. I lived inside the city, and they lived in a a really rough suburb, and they had never been inside the city. And you can get there on the on the bus. Um, and they just didn't, you know, just like their yeah, just the motivation and the, but they I I mean they they were so smart about the hypocrisy of so much of this. So, mm-hmm. so you know, I would I would say, like, education is so important and reading is so important. Well, if it's so important, then how come nobody can buy a new book? Mm-hmm. Well, you know sure. what? You have a point. Wow. And so I guess my really the $600 question, as they may say, is so you are one very – um enlightened and insightful teacher uh how many of your colleagues who are also um different culturally uh just from not just necessarily racially but also from different parts of the country and and different different experiences um do you do you think that your colleagues and how how many of your colleagues are engaged with you in this conversation about what they need to do um, in, in to to balance what these students are not getting. Oh, I am I am not alone, right? Nobody goes into education for the money and the fame. If you go into education, you at least want to make a difference. Now, mm-hmm. oftentimes you are, you know dangerously ignorant about yourself, which is what I would have put myself in that category. Me, as a first-year teacher, was just dangerously ignorant about herself. But, you know, educators also are really interested in learning. And so I think that so many of my colleagues either do know or they want to, you know. They want to know. And I'm not, um, you know, and I'm also in that category. Um, I think of my friend in Indiana who a bunch of uh, Burmese refugees showed up in her town. And she was like, okay, I guess I'm going to learn how to teach Burmese refugees. You know, this did not get covered in the teacher classes that I have, but this is what I'm going to do because these are the kids that I have. Or even for myself, a couple of years ago, I I started looking at, um, you know, because you just don't want to believe it's you. You just don't want to believe that you're the problem, especially when you're working as hard as teachers are working in this country. Um, So, But I I took a hard look at my data, and I realized that I was doing a poor job of educating especially my Latina girls. I just was not connecting with them specifically, like I was other people thought about who in my school seemed to have a really good relationship with a lot of the Latina girls. I went and found them. I said, hey, listen up. I'm failing in this area. Can you help me, you know? And 
they were very willing to do that. I think that within each school in America, there are probably a pocket of people who have educated themselves about this. Now, the trick is to give those teachers the time and the space to educate the other teachers in the building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because, we're, right, we're all in our classrooms all day, and we don't have the space to educate other people. But if, but if you went to the counselors and you said, you know, because the counselors have a, a bird's eye view of the school that other people don't have, and said, hey, mm -hmm. who's really good at teaching this kind of kid? We are failing this other kind of kid. What are, you know, who are the three teachers that are good at them, that are good with those kids? They would be able to tell you. But the trick is, like, allowing those teachers the space to um, help the other teachers in the, mm -hmm. in the building. Sure, because you sure. Don't, you just don't. You don't go into education and then think, oh, it's not a big deal if my kids are failing. Yeah. You and always you know, care about that. Yes, I know. I understand, and and you know we've we've had a few of our recent shows that are peripherally uh, related to this, and I uh, just really want you to know, really appreciate um, your time coming out and 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 sharing um, uh, your your story and your your personal uh, mission to make a difference in the lives of so many children. Uh, we we had a show about discipline and what we can learn from the. Uh, South Carolina school incident that we saw on television and um, the, the video that was released. And we've talked about um, also we had a researcher that looked at discipline policies uh, that happen in schools and even in school districts where uh, the majority of students uh, are African-American that are suspended and expelled while the, their white peers are being um, uh, considered for behavioral uh, modification type programs. And even um, our next guest next week uh, is going to be talking about the link between teacher quality and student achievement that has uh, very strong racial disparities, um, talking about gaps in, um, in students' uh, absences and what teachers, the roles teachers play in that as well. Uh, but all of this is very closely related to some of the things that you said. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not easily fixed. Uh, you mentioned, uh, just as an aside, that 80% of the American teaching force is white, and uh, mm -hmm. while America is 62% white. Um, and, and so the, the landscape is changing in our public schools, uh, and, and we're seeing just as uh, Dr. Orfield uh, uh, underlined, we're seeing more and more students going, uh, particularly in the South, going to private schools, um, while the, the public schools are becoming um, uh, more and more uh, places where students of color and, and fewer dollars are being spent uh, to in, in the places where it needs to be spent. And so, um, you know, it's not something that is easily fixed, um, but we, we appreciate people like you um, who are working to make a difference. And so um, uh, as we come to a close, again, I want to thank you. Um, thank you to all our listeners. I want to encourage you to come back next week. Uh, and here we have uh, Dr. Seth Gershenson, um, who is uh, a professor uh, of uh, education policy. 
um, who is going to be here with us, uh, and he is going to talk about those uh, some very, very closely related issues about teacher quality. Um, that will be next week um, at uh, 2 p.m. Uh, we have a regular show next week from 2 to 2.30. I uh, want to invite you, make sure that you come out and um, and listen to us. If not, uh, feel free to be on archive. Um, same place. So, Abby, thank you for being with us. Uh, Abby, we want you to be sure uh, to uh, keep up the good work, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Take care.